0: Father, thank you for the gospel saturated words that have begun this evening. This evening, when we look back upon the cross of Calvary, where your perfect, sinless, righteous son, son hung on our behalf, would ask, Lord, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would open our minds and our hearts, our very spirits this night to hear and respond to yet again and again and again the good news of Jesus purchased upon the cross, that sinner's cross that each one of us deserves. And of course, that is not the end of the story. However, that is the part of the story we focus on tonight, for without the cross, which one of us can stand before your holy presence, for we are all sinners fallen short of the glory of God. We thank you for the good news that we are about to celebrate in your word. Be glorified as you edify our hearts in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You are welcome to be seated. A Good Friday, as you know, is the day when Jesus Christ suffered and died upon a Roman cross outside Jerusalem at Golgotha, Golgotha, the place of the skull. To call it Good Friday seems tasteless until we realize and are reminded that when Jesus died, He died as our Passover lamb. As the Apostle Paul so briefly writes in the second half of 1 Corinthians 5, 7. It's so brief that if you blink, you'll miss it. But here in this portion of God's word, the Apostle Paul writes, second half, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, for Christ Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. What does this mean? What is the context here? What are the implications? What does this have to do with Good Friday? Well, Good Friday was not the occasion that brought two million Jews to Jerusalem the week of Jesus' crucifixion. They had traveled to Jerusalem to participate in the Passover feast, the commemorative celebration that recalled that night when God instructed their ancestors, their ancient ancestors, God instructed them to sacrifice a spotless lamb and to cover their doorways with its blood in order that they would be protected against the outpouring of God's wrath upon Egypt and delivered from bondage and slavery. That actual Passover event took place, according to Exodus 12, the actual Passover event took place at twilight between the 14th and 15th day of Nisan, which is the first month of the Jewish calendar that overlaps with our late March and April. In order that the people of Israel throughout all their generations would never forget the Passover event, God commanded the Israelites to observe the Passover feast each year at twilight between the 14th and 15th of Nisan. Every household was to sacrifice a spotless male lamb and roast it over the fire to be eaten with bitter herbs and unleavened bread, just as their ancestors had done the night of the actual Passover. This occasion is what brought two million Jews to Jerusalem the week of Jesus' crucifixion. But in order to broaden our understanding of the historical and theological significance of Good Friday, how do these things tie together? The Passover feast, Good Friday, the timing of all of this. In order to broaden our understanding, we we do well to do just a, a little, little bit of digging. According to the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verse 1. Six days before Passover, as Jews from all over the map were making their way toward Jerusalem, six days before Passover, John writes, Jesus and his disciples ate a meal in the town of Bethany, two miles east of Jerusalem, with Mary and Martha and a man named Lazarus, whom he had, Jesus, had raised from the dead a few days prior. John chapter 12 verse 1 is very specific to say that this meal that Jesus had with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus in Bethany, it took place six days before Passover, which would make it Saturday, the 9th of Nisan, A.D. 33. And then John continues in verse 12 saying the next day. So we go from Saturday, the 9th of Nisan, AD 33, to the next day, Sunday, the 10th of Nisan, AD 33, that next day, Jesus, upon a donkey's colt, is greeted and welcomed into Jerusalem by a huge crowd of palm branch waving Jews who had come to town for Passover. Passover. As some of this crowd had watched Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead with their own eyes, and others in this crowd had simply heard about it. But all of them, all the Jews in this crowd with palm branches in hand, they wanted to give Jesus a royal welcome into Jerusalem because they believed, all of them to various degrees, they believed that Jesus had been sent of God to deliver them from their greatest enemy. And Jesus had been sent of God. Jesus, for the last three years of his earthly ministry, had made it very clear he was divine. Through his sermons, through his signs, through his wonders, Jesus had been sent of God, and he had come to deliver God's people from their greatest enemy. But the catch is, it wasn't the enemy the crowd had in mind when they're waving palm branches and welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem. You see, Jesus hadn't come to deliver them from Rome. And that's the reason why the crowd turns on him in a matter of days. Jesus hadn't come to deliver them from their temporal enemy. Jesus had come to deliver all God's people from the eternal penalty and enslaving power of sin. As Jesus triumphantly entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, the crowd... They didn't notice that Jesus wasn't entering upon a horse. Instead, precisely as the prophet Zechariah had foretold 500 years before, Jesus triumphantly entered Jerusalem upon a donkey, which signified that he'd come not to make war, but to make peace. Jesus hadn't come to Jerusalem carrying a sword because he hadn't come to spill anyone's blood but his own. But there's something else the crowd didn't seem to notice. With palm branches in hand as they walked beside Jesus waving in the air, crying out, Hosanna, There's something else they didn't seem to notice. They were bringing Jesus into Jerusalem on Sunday, the 10th of Nisan. Listen to these words spoken from the mouth of God 1,500 years prior to this event in Exodus chapter 12. Listen. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, you shall take a spotless male lamb And you shall bring it in and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. When at twilight, between the 14th and 15th day, the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill the lamb. Unbeknownst to the crowd who brought Jesus into Jerusalem in some sort, they they were bringing in, in their perspective, some sort of a king for hire, when in all reality, they were bringing in the eternal prophet, priest, king, who is himself the true and final and forever Passover lamb who absorbs God's wrath and absolves our sin. The next day, Monday, the 11th of Nisan, Jesus would drive out the swindlers from the temple. The next day, Tuesday, the 12th of Nisan, while Jesus taught in the temple, the chief priests would question his authority. The next day, Wednesday, the 13th of Nisan, the Sanhedrin would make final arrangements to have Jesus killed. And the next day, right on schedule. Thursday, the 14th of Nisan, Jesus would be betrayed by Judas after sharing the Passover meal with his disciples. And as Thursday the 14th gave way to Good Friday the 15th, the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel under the sovereign ordination of God most high they would observe Passover like never before by handing Jesus over to Pilate to be crucified on a Roman cross outside Jerusalem at Golgotha all of this and so much more provides the Historical, theological context for seven little words found in the second half of 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Where is to be found forgiveness for our sins but underneath the blood of the lamb? Where is to be found the cleansing of our guilty consciences but underneath the blood of the Lamb? Where is to be found true tranquility with God and the guarantee that His righteous wrath against our sin has been poured out with nothing left where is that guarantee to be found but underneath the blood of the lamb where is to be found the assurance that our hearts long for that our gravest enemy is defeated our deepest hunger is satisfied and our greatest hope is secured. Where is that to be found but under the blood of the Lamb? Where is to be found this sure and steady anchor of the soul that there is no person, no place, no thing, there is no tribulation. Or distress or persecution that the world can muster there is no famine or poverty or danger or pain there is not death itself nor life nor all of angels or principalities nor things present nor things to come, nor in the past, nor any power, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation that can or will separate you from the love of God. Where can you find that but underneath the blood of the Lamb? Have you... Cried out to God and told him, You know, you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. But I'm also being told that the blood of the Lamb washes that away. And I'm also told that the blood of the Lamb signs, seals, and delivers all who, with a mustard seed size of faith, simply say, I'm a sinner. And there's nothing I can do to be reconciled to you, holy God, except for your holy son, whom you put to death on my behalf to absolve my sin and absorb your own wrath where love and mercy and wrath and justice meet. Have you cried out to God to simply tell him, you're a sinner, confess it with your mouth and believe with your heart that Jesus... In his life, death, and resurrection has done everything to grant you forever unfettered access into the kingdom that never ends. Is the blood of Jesus painted over the doorway of your heart like the blood of the lamb was painted over the doorway of the ancient Israelites' houses? Is the blood of Jesus painted over the doorway of your heart? And if not, why not? And why not now? Why not on this day that the Lord has made? It is as simple and wonderful as right where you are in your heart, saying, I'm a sinner. Please, by the blood of the Lamb, wash me clean. For those who have, for those whose hearts are once and for all covered underneath the blood of the Lamb, You know, there is a new meal that Jesus introduced the night that he enjoyed Passover for the last time. It is the new meal of the new covenant in his blood. And it is at this meal, with the element of the bread and the cup, that those who have responded with mustard seed-sized faith where we simply throw ourselves, we cast ourselves at this table and we declare from here to kingdom come that Jesus died and now we don't have to. And we celebrate and we declare the blood of the lamb in the cup. We declare his broken body in the bread by eating, by drinking, by partaking in this sensory meal. And I've said this before, I heard it from someone smarter than me. This sensory meal, as real as the bread is in your mouth, as real as the cup, as the juice, so real is this fact that you in Christ have been absolutely and forever absolved of all guilt. And there is no going back. There is no becoming unborn again after you've become born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. So this meal is an opportunity for the saints of Christ. For any who have mustard seed sized faith to come forward and to enjoy. In repentance, as Pastor Ed so eloquently puts it every single week, we continue to sin. We stand forgiven at the cross. But oh Lord, my day today, I haven't acted like I'm yours Forgive me, heal me, sanctify me, and lead me to put on the righteousness that already clothes me in Jesus. So we take of this meal in a spirit of repentance, and boy, do we also take of it in a spirit of celebration. For there really is not any condemnation whatsoever, not at all, not a drop of God's wrath left for those who are in Christ. You will never, brother or sister in Christ, you will never, ever, ever see or taste or experience the wrath of God. Jesus has emptied that for you and me. When we realize. And when we are reminded that Jesus, our Passover lamb, has, past tense, secured all this for those who are underneath his blood, when we really understand that, maybe you're with me, I don't know that Good Friday says it quite enough. It's Glorious Friday. Yes, and amen, glory, glory, hallelujah. Christ in me, the hope of glory, and Christ in you, the hope of glory. And the worst day that we see on this earth will not be anything to compare to the glory that is soon to be revealed to you and I when we meet him with unveiled face. So, I'm gonna pray I'm gonna thank God for this wonderful new covenant communion meal. And for those who are in Christ by faith, I would welcome you after I'm done praying and after our communion servers come forward, you can come at any time and take with lightness of heart, signed, sealed, and delivered, you belong to Jesus. So let's pray and then we'll get after it. Father God in heaven, may your name be now and forever hallowed in our hearts and our homes, in our words, in our attitudes, in our conduct, in every fabric and piece of our life, Lord, may you be hallowed because you are the wise God who with the Son and the Spirit concocted and executed the world's redemption in Perfect glory in your sending the Passover lamb, Jesus, at the perfect time. He was brought in and he was sacrificed, representing all those who would come by faith to him, calling out for forgiveness from sin. Jesus, you represented every single one of us and drank the wrath of God to the dregs. There is now no condemnation for us in you. And that is why with a spirit of penitence and with a spirit of celebration, we can joyfully walk down the aisle and participate in the new covenant meal that you have given to us that we would worshipfully declare, we are yours and you are ours. And nothing and no one can separate us from that. We thank you for this. We thank you for the agonies of the cross that you faced. For now, we do not have to face that agony of God's wrath any longer. And what a solace that brings to our souls. You are worthy. You are wonderful. We praise you, Father, and you, Spirit, and you, Son,